amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This is Alex, and welcome to Barely Braided, where we're taking a deep, deep dive into foster care, adoption, and all things parenting, even the sticky stuff. Welcome to episode 25. Today is really special because while I have had guests in the past that were adopted as children, I've never had the opportunity to sit down and interview an individual who was involved in the foster care system as a child. So I'm really looking forward to that today. Big welcome to Pauline. She's a social worker, a foster care reform advocate, and former foster youth. She also hosts a podcast called Foster Features, where she explores and navigates the complex layers and impact of foster care on youth, families, culture, and society. Welcome, Pauline. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Me too. I am so excited for this episode. I know I have a bunch of questions ready to go for you, but I feel like this episode, we may get off on some tangents. So I hope that's okay with you. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, cool. So this is one of my favorite things that I learned about you. So for some context for our guests, I would like to talk about where you currently live. I live in Brooklyn, New York. Amazing. I love New Yorkers. I just wanted to put that out there. I just, I (laughs) love the culture. I've spent a little bit of time, you know, like vacationing in New York. I've never spent a ton of time there, but I just am so about the personality and the energy of New Yorkers. Yeah. It's interesting because people always comment about the energy, like every single person that I've ever met who has visited here or has moved here from somewhere else always comments on the energy. I'm like, that's so interesting. Cause when I go to other cities, I really don't think about the energy I think about other things, you know, I'm like, oh, I really like that everyone bikes or, you know, like there's always like something about a city that is sort of makes that city distinct in some way, but Mm -hmm. it seems to be universal that everyone feels the energy in New York. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I feel like if you meet somebody from New York or um, like speak with them on the phone or, you know, come across them in your life, I've never met like a subdued or what I would consider <laughs> like a lazy person from New York City. And I'm sure they probably exist, but I feel like there can't be that many of them. Yeah. I mean, you, you yeah, unless you come from extraordinary wealth, <laughs> it's really oh. hard to achieve that and survive here. <laughs> That is so funny. The one memory that I have from when I was very, very young in New York, my parents took me to a retail market where they go and they buy like wholesale goods for their retail business back in South Dakota. And they brought me, I was probably four maybe or five. And so while my mom was working, my dad and I were just kind of walking the streets, seeing what we could see. And we ran across a very friendly man. He appeared to be homeless, possibly. And he started talking to us and he wanted to give us nicknames. And so he nicknamed me Misty Morning Star. And I'll never forget that. And then he nicknamed my dad the animal. (laughs) Wow. What did he what did he do to get that name? (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, he was kind of like a large man, you know, he wasn't like really chubby or anything, but he was just, you know, a large statured man. And I I guess he could be kind of intimidating looking. He had like really dark black curly hair. I don't know. He was nicknamed the animal. And I thought that was the funniest thing I had ever heard. (laughs) Well, especially at four or five. That is pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. So he he was the animal for many, many years. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you remember that. Wow. You were so young. I know. It's just one of those experiences that you'll just never forget. (laughs) (laughs) Well, New York will definitely do that. Mm -hmm. So I know we talked about as a child, you were in the foster care system and then you were later adopted. I think that could go into a very long story. Tell us about as much of that as you are comfortable sharing. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. And I lived in Boston until I was adopted out at 12. And then we moved to the suburbs, like half an hour northwest of Boston. And so I was born into a very large family. 
And I was the youngest of five. And then my mother, my birth mother remarried and had my younger sister. And so my younger sister and I are just under three years apart. And we were the closest. So all of my other older siblings were like 10 plus years older than me. So I didn't have you know, much of a relationship with them just because of the age difference. Like they were teenagers when I was in elementary school. So my sister, her name is Joanne, but we call her Joe or Jojo. So Joe and I were, you know, always in the same school together and we were very, very close. And so when I was, in, I would say my relationship with foster care started probably when I was an infant. So my birth mother had left um, her marriage to my birth dad and he was an abusive alcoholic and so in order for her to get herself on her feet to leave that marriage to protect her children, she had to go into a shelter. So all of us entered um, the foster care system. And I don't think we were there for very long, maybe a few months. And then I do recall a time, it's interesting, I wish I could like view my records and maybe they're accessible, but I've never tried. I think I was probably two or three, I was in it again. And I think also sh very short term and then returned home to my birth mother where I remained until I was nine. So my younger sister and I entered care when, you know, for the final time when I was nine and she was six years old. And so my sister's biracial, her birth father is black. And this is, you know, the eighties in Boston, which um, your listeners may or may not know, but it's a very segregated city. It remains a very segregated city. And so unfortunately, like we lived in like low income housing in what would be referred to as the projects. And it was mainly low income white families. And so we were a little different in that we had a black father figure in the household and a biracial child in the household. And so that sort of drew a lot of attention to our household by law enforcement and social services. So like neighbors would call the cops on us. And so we were sort of always on the radar. Like I remember like cops coming and like talking with my parents at the door and then they would leave. And, you know, sometimes you, you would see them take notes or whatever. So I didn't actually put all of that together until I was well into my thirties when I was in social work school. Did I put together that it was very racially motivated, a lot of the attention that we received from social services and from law enforcement. And also at that, in that period of time in the eighties and nineties, there was a lot of collaboration between social services and law enforcement because there had just been this huge movement toward bringing down child abuse, specifically um, child sexual abuse. And there was just kind of this movement. It was like five or six years and like everyone was being accused. And, you know, there was just, it was finally getting attention, child sexual abuse. But there also with that came a lot of, you know, false claims and things like that. So there was a lot of attention on our household in particular because we were an interracial family. So when we entered care, we were in a couple of different homes for a very short term. And then we were placed in our third and final foster home. And we were there for about three and a half years before we were adopted. And it was a very, very abusive household. So we were relieved and very fortunate to get adopted out of that situation. And yeah, so we, and we were adopted by a Jewish family in the suburbs. And when we entered our new community, it was, if I'm sure my, my mom might have a different <laughs> telling of this story, but it seemed quite seamless. You know, we, you know, entered the schools. I entered eighth grade. I think my sister was entering fourth grade or fifth grade. And we just immediately took to the neighborhood. We made friends, we had bikes and we had two cars, a dog, you know, like that kind of very typical idealistic suburban life, which we had never, we had only ever seen in shows and in movies. We had always grown up in a city and in poverty. So this was so exciting to us. And my sister just, you know, was taking the violin and I was on the swim team and we made friends and we had sleepovers and we had holiday traditions that we were, you know, very much a part of establishing because my family is Jewish and uh, my sister and I were born Catholic. So we had all of the holidays. We did Easter, Christmas, Hanukkah, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, so our lives became much bigger, much fuller, and we were immediately, we at least felt immediately accepted and not just by our peers at school and our teachers, but also by our extended family. So now we had cousins our age and we would spend weekends with them and everyone lived sort of close by. So it was a very positive experience in that way. 
Wow. Okay. There is a lot there and I have a ton of questions. I hope you don't mind. No, I don't mind. Okay. So I had no idea that Boston was segregated at that time or that was a huge problem for that area. Do you know, is it still that way today? It is. Yes. I mean, now that there is an even broader wealth gap kind of generally in cities, you see it even more. And same here in New York, you know, now there's gentrification. And so gentrification, you see communities of color getting even smaller. Um, But it's, yeah, Boston is still, you know, it's considered like a blue state, the state of Massachusetts. And in some ways, they do have some very progressive policies in some areas. But how that culture, I think, is manifested is it's still very segregated. And here in New York City, the the public schools are still segregated. So um, segregation is still very much alive and, and functioning. Wow. Um, So I want to make sure I understand this correctly. For the final time you entered foster care, you said you had been in a couple different homes and then you were in a home for over three years before you were adopted by a different family. Did I get that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So when you transitioned to the family who adopted you, were you at that point doing bio family visits? Did you get to see your older siblings? What did that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, our situation was probably not entirely unique. We did have a closed adoption, which means that there is no contact with birth family members, or at least it's not legally required that there be contact. Um, My adoptive parents always told us that if we wanted to reach out, that they would help us do that. So the rights of my birth father were terminated. My birth mother was terminated for both my sister and I, and then my sister's father's rights were terminated as well. And so within a year of the termination of their rights, we were adopted. So it was actually quite quick. We didn't expect to be adopted at all, but we certainly didn't expect to be adopted so quickly in part because I was older, I was 12 years old and that, you know, and and we were a sibling pair. So we had to be adopted together. So it's not often at least not at that time, to find a lot of families who wanted to adopt a two two sisters and one as old as I was. So we got very, very lucky. And one of the reasons is that our caseworker, um, our adoption worker, whose name is Kathy, she was just just graduated from social work school. She was probably 23 or 24 years old. And we were her very first case. So she put everything into us. And I think that's probably <laughs> the the reason that we got adopted was that she was just on the ball. And typically, uh, you might get a caseworker who is completely over inundated with cases and doesn't have the time or the energy to devote uh, to a case like ours, which kind of seemed possibly like a lost cause. So we really lucked out in that way. Did you and your sister want to be adopted? And then also, did the caseworker consider your opinion or ask you? Yes. So I'm not sure exactly what my sister experienced. We were both in therapy. So a lot of the conversations I think around getting adopted happened in those therapy sessions. So, um, I mean, I was given a choice in part because of my age, or at least I was asked how much power actually had. I don't really know, especially back then. I mean, these policies change all the time on a state level. But yeah, we did want to get adopted because we wanted to get out of our abusive foster home. So, and we knew that we, you know, that we had no options. Our options were we stayed in this foster home and then we aged out. Um, and my, I would age out three years before my sister did, which would be very painful to be separated or we would get adopted and we would be able to stay together. So yeah, we definitely wanted um, to get adopted. Okay. So during this time, um, not only in the foster home, but also in your adoptive family's home, did you maintain contact with your biological mother or do you still maintain contact with her? What does that relationship look like? Yeah. So because we were a closed adoption, like I said, there was nothing required for us to stay in touch. I did though reach out to a birth sister. Um, I have two older sisters who are twins Um, And they were about 10, they're about 10 years older than me, I would say. And when I was about 13 or 14, my adoptive mom did arrange for us to meet and we met like in a neutral place. We met at a restaurant in a mall, like close to where um, my birth sister was living and we had dinner and I just, I didn't like her. Like I remember getting in the car in the parking lot afterward and turning to my mom and saying, okay, I don't need, I don't ever need to do that again. And she's like, what? What do you what do you mean? And I was like, Yep, I'm all set. I don't I don't need to be in touch with her. And she's like, Okay, well, if you change your mind, like 
let me know. She's like, what? Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Happened. And I just said, she just, she seemed mean. And I remembered her being mean as a kid. And it had been quite a few years since I'd last seen her. And I was like, nope, she suits, you know, she fits the memory that I have of her. So I mean, I'm sure a lot of factors went into like how she responded to me. Like I was getting the second chance, you know, she aged out of care, like had, you know, no adult looking out for her. So maybe there was some jealousy there. Maybe there was some anger over other things. I don't really know, but I, I was never close with either of those sisters. So um, I think that probably played a part in that as well. And the way she commented and asked about Joe was, I just felt like it was really dismissive and disrespectful. And I'm so protective, even now as, as a grown up, um, I am very protective of my younger sister. So something about that interaction just didn't sit right with me. And I was like, no, I, this doesn't feel right. I don't, I don't just because she's blood related to me doesn't mean anything to me. So I never saw her again. Wow. What a mature realization. As you said, you were 14. I was about 13 or 14. Yeah, it was early on. Like, I'm not even sure that we were legally adopted yet. We were living with our adoptive parents, but I don't even think we were legally adopted yet when that happened. Wow. So is it the same for your biological father and then also your sister's biological father? Still not a lot of contact since then? Right. Because their rights were terminated and it wasn't an open adoption. So unless we expressed interest, which neither of us did. I mean, my sister was six years old when we entered care. So I'm not sure how strong her memories of whatever bond she had are, you know. So, I mean, when we were older, when we were in our 20s, we had a conversation about it. And I just said, you know, do you want to reach out? And she said no. And I said, okay. And so I made my decision based on her decision because it's very difficult to connect with a birth family without my sister like somehow being involved. And I really respected that she needed me, I think, to support her in that decision. And so ultimately, that's what I did. Wow. There's a lot there. So I really appreciate you, you know, having the courage to be willing to talk about this. I can't imagine that it's easy. I can't relate. And so I'm so worried about like saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong question. So <laughs> please know my intentions are good. And I just, I really, really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, and as a podcaster myself, when I have conversation, difficult conversations about, you know, other former foster youth um, sharing their story, I feel the exact same way. And sometimes it's, I almost feel like I forget for a second that we have a shared experience in some ways. And I too fear saying the wrong thing. So don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. So you also mentioned that the final foster home that you were in for a long period of time was, I guess, I'm not sure the words you used, but it was not, I guess, the best place for you to be. You wanted to be adopted by another family. Can you talk about living with that foster home? Yeah. So, I mean, they were, I mean, and, and again, this like the time period is important um, because there weren't as many restrictions around fostering as there are now, but they had 12 children in their home when I moved in. Like my sister and I made, you know, 11 and 12. And they did have two biological children and one adopted child in their home. And then the remaining children were foster children. And there was some cycling in and out of like one, two or three um, foster youth, but mainly for the three and a half years that we were there, there were the same kind of core kids there. So they were also there sort of long-term and neither of them worked. And they, uh, they were just, they were very abusive. They weren't physically, like they didn't punch or hit or slap, but their type of abuse was very fear-based, um, verbal, 
you know, like making you stay in a room for days. Um, the door wasn't locked, but you were made to fear leaving the room. So there was, they, they used a lot of tactics um, that were very um, trauma inducing and, um, and, and really not, you know, especially when you're dealing with children who have traumatic backgrounds, they just compounded any trauma that a child came with into their home and, and then created a, you know, a whole new level of trauma. And they were, you know, I sort of refer to them as like sociopaths because they were very good at looking on the outside, like really stand up people, like the community donated money to them and clothes and all kinds of things. They had like an off the books charity that were, you know, they were these mason jars that were in like local stores and people would put money in there for them. <laughs> so they weren't like a 501c. They were just like, they just named themselves and it was like for foster youth and people would put in 20s and 10s. And so it was very much a money-making machine for them. And again, like you, you and I have had this conversation before offline where like, no, no one goes into this to get rich, but some people do go into it to subsidize their income. So they were able to not work and they lived in a pretty sizable colonial home in Boston and they were able to not work. So the more children they had, the more paychecks they had. And we were never given anything new. There was never gifts. There were, you know, no birthday celebrations. Like there was none of that. And they, you know, it was their way of kind of ruling the household was based on fear. So like everyone was for the most part, like there were no tantrums. There were, everyone was quiet. Like you just wanted to not draw attention to yourself. And so that's how we lived for three and a half years was, you know, trying so hard just not to call attention to ourselves. So you mentioned that um, now the guidelines for becoming a foster parent may be more strict. Do you think they are good enough to prevent a family like this from obtaining a foster care license at this point? Absolutely not. Yeah, because I'm thinking it's got to be so easy to fool, um, you know, the training class company or mm -hmm. the home study company to make them believe that you would be a suitable foster family, even if you were just in it to collect money and not have to have to work. Right. I mean, if this is, you know, something, you know, if this is something you really want to do, you know, to make money, you make it happen, right? Like you show up to an interview and like you put on your best game face, even if like you hate the job, you hate the company, you know, you have no intention of really making any kind of professional commitment. It's very similar in that way. And also the privatization of foster care has made it very lucrative for those companies that do the so-called vetting. So the more people that sign up and pay to take their courses or certification, you know, it kind of behooves them to not have the reputation of turning people away. You know, they, they kind of work together in that way, which makes it very hard to find quality, safe homes for children. Well, that's kind of what I was wondering is what could have prevented this, if anything? I mean, is there a way that um, this type of family could be, I guess, more or less outed and their foster care license revoked? I mean, is there anything that could have been done? Yes. I mean, there could have been adults in that space really observing and really listening. You know, I complained after I think I had been there two weeks and I complained to my social worker. And mm. my social worker told my foster parents, just told them. And I know that because when I got home from school the next day, my foster dad confronted me in the mud hall and picked me up by my coat, my little nine-year-old body and pushed me against the wall and said, if you open your mouth again, we are going to send you away and we're going to keep your sister. And so he knew exactly like how to get to me. Yeah. And so I never opened my mouth again. Well, and as a nine-year-old, that's probably one of the most terrifying things that could happen to you is being separated from the one person who brings you comfort. Right. And I wow. was terrified. I mean, if he had said, we'll keep you and send her, I might even have been like, do that. I don't want her here experiencing this. But who knows? You know, I might have been more selfish and just wanted her close to me. But yeah, that, that really worked. And then a few months later, she left that particular caseworker. And we got another caseworker who I really have almost no memory of, which is odd. Also, there wasn't a lot of visits in general from our social worker at all. So it was very hard to build a rapport and a trust to be able to say something. And, and now I just didn't trust any adults, right? Like there was teachers at school who I felt really close to. And there were camp counselors at my day camp after school that I just was like looking at you know, like, can I tell her? Can I tell her? Is she going to 
get me in trouble. And I just never got up the nerve again. I really believed him. And, and I think he had the power to do exactly that. He would have said I was disruptive. It was a bad relationship for my sister. I was a bad influence. And he might have been really successful in separating us. So, I mean, it happens a lot in care, even currently. So um, that was a big fear of mine. So I just never said anything again. Yeah, I can see how it would be like the perfect storm of several adults in your life kind of breaking your trust or mistreating you and your trust suddenly is gone for all adults or figures of authority, even those who may actually be trustworthy and able to help you as a child. That would be an impossible situation to be in. You can kind of see how that came about. Yes, absolutely. You know, and and there were other things too, you know, like I wasn't eating, I um, was hospitalized twice in that first year and a half in that foster home for malnutrition and spent six weeks of my summer. I think it was between fourth and fifth grade and then between, no, it was between fifth and sixth grade and then between sixth and seventh grade. Both those summers I was hospitalized for malnutrition and, um, you know, the, my behavior was pathologized, right? I was like, oh, there's something wrong with her. Um, that she's not eating, like she's choosing not to eat. This is how she's rebelling, you know, because I wasn't throwing tantrums or getting in fights in school or getting bad grades. I was just not eating. No one thought to look into that. Like, wow, she was fine for the six months that she was in another foster home, or I wasn't fine, but I wasn't malnourished. And there was nothing, no investigation done, like no look at the foster parents. They were just, they were just looked at as like, oh, you poor people, this is so hard on you. And it was never really investigated that this could be an abuse case that I was responding to a significant trauma that I was experiencing that was, you know, no adults, like all these nurses and doctors and psychologists and social workers, like no one really took a harder look. So I felt like even my body is sending this message and no one's picking it up. That's very interesting um, because that was going to be my next question is what are some different ways that children can express trauma that adults might not initially recognize like not eating where maybe a nurse or a doctor or a counselor or a teacher could have picked up on that and could have provided help? Are there other ways you can think of that children may express trauma that may not initially lead the actually helpful adult figure back into questioning what's going on in that child's life? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one I've answered a few times in my advocacy work, because I wasn't that kid who was accusing or, or, you know, like causing a lot, you know, bringing a lot of attention to myself. I was the kid that was quieter. I was going to school. I was getting good grades. I loved school. Um, I was very helpful, very responsible, was called precocious, all those things. And the one thing I say is that if you have a kid that looks like they're thriving and they're in foster care, they look like they're thriving, <laughs> take another mm -hmm. look. Take another look because there's no way that a kid that's been, you know, ripped. I mean, and obviously every circumstance is different. Like if this child came from an extremely abusive or neglectful situation and they were placed in your home and you're using like mindfulness techniques and trauma-informed intervention and that child begins to thrive, then that's great. That means that what you're doing is working. But if you have a kid who hasn't experienced those things and they seem like they're, you know, like what the um, social workers would call like, oh, my good cases, meaning like I don't have to do surprise visits. I'm not worried about them. Like they're doing great in school. Their teachers say they're very helpful in the classroom. And they seem to be thriving. And it's like, no, <laughs> take another look because not all children, you know, for me, I was so scared to misbehave. I was so scared to indicate in any way that I needed attention on a situation, those are the kids that you really need to make sure that like they're not being silenced in an abusive way. So I always say, you know, that can be a red flag too. Like a kid looks like they're doing really well and maybe they are, but make sure you know why they're doing well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in what ways did your parents, your adoptive parents, help to kind of heal that? And how did they provide healing to you? Do you remember anything specifically? Yeah. I mean, I think I was 14 by the time I mustered up the courage to tell my mom. And we were actually on like a, I think we were on a school holiday and we had gone to Philadelphia to visit like a, a college friend of my mom's and who was a social worker actually. And we had stayed up late. I think my sister had gone to bed and I think even the friend that we were visiting had gone to bed. It was just my mom and I, we, we were just up and, you know, just talking. And I said, mom, there's something I have to tell you. And she said, okay, what is it? And I told her, you know, some of the stories of, 
you know, what had happened to Joe and I in the foster home. And she's like, oh my gosh, you know, she, at, at first she didn't say she believed me, but she didn't say she didn't believe me, but she mm-hmm. was definitely like, are you sure? You know, like kind of questioning me. And I had been working on mustering the courage to tell her in my therapy sessions. So my therapist oh. had been helping me to find a way to talk about it with my mom. So I went back to therapy the next week and I told my therapist, like, I don't think my mom believes me. And she's like, okay, well, we're going to fix that. And so she called in my mom and my dad. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And she said, this is not unusual. And my therapist was a clinical social worker. And she said, this happens all the time. What she is sharing with you is not unique in that way. You need to believe her. And so right away, like my parents called a lawyer. They called the agency I was adopted through. And an attorney came. He interviewed me. I don't know if he interviewed my sister. I'm not sure. I think she might have been protected from this whole thing. But he interviewed me and there was like a kind of a small investigation, not into their behavior, but I think it was more just like checking to see if these, if they could substantiate, you know, what I was saying. And they went to the foster home and the foster home had closed down the year before. So my theory is that they knew once I left their home, I was going to talk. Wow. And so they took preemptive action and they closed themselves down. So, I mean, I'm upset that there wasn't an investigation that could have led to criminal charges because what they did was criminal and what they did, what didn't just happen to me and to my sister, it happened to every kid that entered their home and left their home. They were foster parents for over 20 years. So I can't even imagine the damage cumulatively that they had done. So I was a little bit upset about that, but I was relieved to hear that they weren't fostering any more children. And they had tried to stop our adoption. And so then my mom started to think back and she's like, oh my gosh, that explains so much. Like there was a time as we were getting closer and closer to like getting you girls to come live with us, that they just started making these accusations that like you guys were performing poorly in school, you were having outbursts in the home and that the day camp was complaining about you. And so again, my caseworker who was 23, 24 years old, this was her first case. She had the time to go in and like ask all my teachers, ask all my camp counselors. And they were like, no, the girls are doing great. They're super excited to get adopted. And so because my foster parents, um, their story could not be substantiated, then they had no reason to not go ahead with the adoption. So my mom's like, that's why they did that. They knew you were going to talk. Wow. So they sound like absolutely awful people. And I'm wondering, as an adult, do you ever desire to just like call them up and tell them off? Or I just I couldn't stop myself from doing something really, really mean as an adult, a powerful (laughs) adult that is no longer scared. Have you ever had that thought? Um, Sure. Absolutely. I'm sure I've had that thought many times. But kind of how I respond to what they did is I just, I try to affect the change that I want to see to make people like them not able to ever care for a child and to not shame their behavior, although their behavior is shameful, but to to tell my story, to get other people to tell their story, to take the power away that they exerted over some of you know the most vulnerable people you can ever have, to really just take that, you know, to take the strength that I gained from that and not put it toward them, but to put it toward something bigger and better and greater. In my opinion, they, they don't deserve any attention. You know, they really don't. They're a dime a dozen in terms of like just terrible people, unfortunately. Yeah. So I, I would say I've definitely had those dreams. I've had dreams where like I'm yelling or like I'm trying to escape or I'm trying to save someone else from a similar 
situation, but ultimately, you know, they're not well, they, you know, they are not well people. So nothing I could say to them would ever change them and certainly would not rewrite my experiences or improve upon them. So I just, I've just learned that like, I just have to push forward. And I think that my own success is, you know, the only punishment I guess I can provide, right? Because they were you know, would say terrible, awful things, not just to me, but to all the kids in the home, like we're worthless. We're never going to do anything with our lives. And it's like, yep, well, now I have an MSW, graduated top of my class. So now what? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I think it was just about dispelling and rejecting everything they ever said to me that was horrible and abusive and really just pushing it, you know, pushing myself forward and challenging the things that, you know, that they embodied by just like being the best version of myself that I can be. Well, and it sounds too like just you as a person, as you were born, you've just come with that resiliency and that strength because not everybody has that. Not everybody could take that sort of situation and make it into as positive and as beneficial as you're doing now. So, I mean, that's just on you as a person at your core. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't do it alone. You know, my sister, I think is, you know, she is the foundation of the goodness in me you know, like being her big sister, like my sister is, I always say she just has grace. She just has so much grace. And I think grace might even be a religious word. (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) And we're not religious people. um, And we're not Christian. (laughs) But I would say that, you know, she just by being her, she showed me goodness and kindness and empathy. And I learned by being her big sister, that I really needed to embody those qualities as well. And I think I always had like a deep empathy, but I could always you know, kind of fall off a little bit, like get really, you know, I get really intense and like impassioned. And, you know, sometimes I can get a little judgy sometimes. And my sister's always like, who are you judging? And I'm always like, okay, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Like she kind of snaps me (laughs) out of it sometimes. She's like, you're on your soapbox for a little too long now. Time to step down and just have a listen. And she's right. You know, so I would say that, you know, I didn't do it alone. And I also think that, you know, we talk about attachment theory a lot in social work and in in child welfare in general, that the attachment that you form from like zero to three is very important to like how you develop resiliency and how you are able to um, overcome a trauma that involves like a separation from a caretaker. And I think for me, I had that, you know, like my, I think my attachment with my birth mom was a, was a very healthy one and um, a very strong one. And so I think that had a lot to do with my ability to bounce back from certain things. And for my sister, I think she might've had a little less of that because of just what was happening in our world at the time that she was born. You know, like I said, like there was a lot of targeting happening in our home by law enforcement and social services. And so I think that there was a lot of stress happening in the households that might've impacted my sister's um, attachment with our birth mom. I love how you talk about your sister, how you describe her and how you describe your relationship with her. I just think it's it's very sweet. Let's talk about your podcast and the missions you serve by creating it and what your content looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to have a safe space to talk about the hard things that, you know, some of the things that you and I are talking about today, but topics that, you know, are really entrenched in our child welfare system and across the country and how that, that looks differently in different states. And I really want to give a voice, you know, to the, to the realities that, you know, that are, that plague children and plague families that are involved in the system. And I really want foster youth and former foster youth to have a place to own their stories, you know, in, in, in a way that, they're almost always denied, you know, so it's, I want to challenge the system, but I think that one of the most meaningful ways to do that is to create a collective of, you know, the sorts of, you know, real people, real stories. And I think that those voices are going to be the vehicle for change. I think that where we stand now, we're informed by old archaic things that don't make sense anymore that have been disproven or have been proven not to work decade after decade And I really think that the seat at the table for these types of things really needs to be occupied by by people who have really been impacted by it. And to say, like, this is what we need. This is how we want to receive it. These are the experiences that we've had. So, like, we should have a say in how, you know, the vetting process looks. Like, who should be foster parents? Who shouldn't be foster parents? Who should be social workers? Who should be caseworkers? Who should be administrators of these 
agencies that make these massive, impactful decisions that cannot be taken back and cannot be necessarily healed. You know, a lot of healing happens outside of the system, not while you're in it. You know, like a lot of my healing happened because I was adopted by a middle-class family who was able to provide me with the therapist of my choice for years. I mean, I went to that therapist, I think, till I was 17 years old. And then I had another therapist in my 20s up into my early 30s um, and, you know, had to had to do that healing on my own. And even through Foster Features, like it's, you know, the podcast is it's not an easy thing. Like you said earlier, you're like, this isn't, this isn't an easy thing. And I think for me, because it's so personal, you know, even when I'm interviewing someone else and it's their story and not mine, it's hard. Like I call my mom afterward and I call my sister afterward and I'm like, gosh, that was really hard. Like you guys got to listen to this. And, you know, sometimes it's shared experiences and sometimes it's the experiences that I didn't have, but I can imagine how hard that must have been. I had a guest on for my last episode who was separated from her siblings and I called my mom and I got choked up and I was like, just the thought alone of being separated from Joe would have like done me in. It would have mm-hmm. done me in. And this woman was separated from her siblings since she was 12. And I'm like, what? How did she survive? And she has thrived. I mean, she's an author. She's a, a beautiful person. And she's doing the work to try to keep siblings together in care. And you know, she's an extraordinary person. And I just think like, it's still hard. You know, like I've been working through this stuff my whole life. And it, it, it is still really hard. And it's, it's, it's hard to hear other people's stories too. But I think it's really important. And I think when it stops being hard, then you need to step away because then you're not you're not going to really embody, I think, the force that's going to take to impact the change, to affect the change that we want to see. Absolutely. And we talk about this quite a bit on the podcast. It's no secret that there are definitely several parts of the foster care system or the child welfare system that are flawed in every single state. So if I'm a foster adoptive parent or even somebody who's not involved in foster care or adoption, how can I work to help correct my local systems? Are there ways I can get involved and help drive positive change? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's so different from state to state and in some states, county to county. I would say, you know, start with a Google search, you know, search for programs in your area that support foster youth, research them to make sure that they are a legit movement, that they're not exploiting foster youth, but that they're actually providing real resources, meaningful services or resources of some kind. And you can either volunteer your time or you can donate or, you know, you could just educate yourself, like just be aware of, you know, what this system is like and what the impact of that is long-term and short-term on children and on families. And just bring that awareness with you into your circles, other people who don't know. It really Mm -hmm. starts with awareness because you can't, even with voting, you know, like you can't vote for a candidate if you don't know where they stand on your important issues, right? And so I would say, I think this is an important issue for everyone. This is children. So, I mean, that's my value. Maybe other people don't share that value, but if you know that, you know, your assembly person, your senator, your rep, your prosecutor, how they view youth and how they, you know, fight for real systemic change to the approach that the system now embodies toward children, which is it's not in their best interest. Like child welfare as a whole is not informed by evidence-based research. They're not informed by people who have actually been impacted by this. And so that needs to change. But, you know, on a policy level, that's very important to have that level of awareness. Like, who are you voting for and where do they stand on issues like this? And if they don't have a stand on this issue, maybe write to them and say, like, this is an issue. Can you have a stand on it? And then I'll decide if I support you or don't support you. So I think it starts with awareness. And then once you have an awareness, then you kind of know where to go from there. And you can decide for yourself how you want to participate. And for some people, it's donating money. Like it's just, and money is needed for these types of things. So like if writing a check is is what you can do, write a check. And if you want to volunteer your time and volunteer the time of your family, that's wonderful too. And the more engagement you have, you know, the more it changes your experience and can change your life and could maybe change the lives of, of children in the system. 
Yes, I totally agree. There is something I want to call out, but I'm a little bit nervous to do it. I might be digging myself in a hole here, but (laughs) we're going to go there anyways. So I know a lot of my friends and family members and people who aren't themselves involved in foster care or adoption or that sort of thing, they want to support foster children. They want to support adopted children, but the only way they know how is by providing financial donations. Mm -hmm. While that is incredibly important. I don't know that they realize that there are other ways to make impactful changes like you mentioned, finding out your local politicians what their stances are on these sort of things or researching what maybe some people believe to be flaws in your local foster care system and advocating for change that way is just as important, if not more important than, you know, a $50 donation at Christmas in the name of my foster children. It's important to know that there are other ways to make change than a bank account, which is always accepted. You know, I'm not, I'm not dogging on that at all, but there are other ways that could be very helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, awareness is key, you know, just, just knowing it, like they could be, I mean, there could be a random moment in their lives. Like they're on a cruise on vacation and they're seated with this, you know, this couple and somehow, you know, foster kid comes up, who knows why, maybe it's a movie they saw or a show they saw and they, they say something really inappropriate or judgmental or, or false about foster children specifically, because normally that's where the stigma sits. And they would then know to say like, that's not true. And here's why it's not true. You know, or I'm sorry you feel that way, but here's what I know. And then hopefully, you know, depending on how that engagement occurred, you know, that you are able to get these people to open their minds and say like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. That's hard. Okay. All right. Maybe I see it differently now. So it could, mm-hmm. it could just be like a random thing that you cannot predict, you cannot anticipate, but having the information is so key because without it, you, you, you're not going to make good decisions or you're not going to make, at least you're not going to make decisions that have foster youth in mind, that have their best interest in mind. Yes. Yep. What are a few things that you wish every brand new foster or adoptive parent, or especially like foster adoptive parents that didn't have any prior parenting experience like my husband and I, what are a few things you wish they knew? Mm, Yeah. So what I would say is, you know, regardless of where that child is coming from, just the act of separation is traumatic. So you have to know that even if you strongly believe in your heart, like you are providing this essential service to this child, you're providing a safe home, meals, attention, all of these things, just know that just the act of separation is very traumatic. And it's a deep pain that's chronic and it's pervasive and it really needs tending to in the most empathetic ways. And when people talk about trauma and healing, trauma can happen in a second, in a minute, but healing, it takes time and a sustained effort. So in that way, it's a different kind of commitment. It really is. And so I would say, be patient. And and I would say, thank you. <laughs> thank mm-hmm. you so much for being one of the good ones. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Be patient and be available and allow yourself to be challenged because you're going to be challenged. That's just a fact. Because if you didn't experience anything like this, it's going to be hard. But even if you did, and I'm someone who did, and I worked with foster youth in my second year clinical internship at school and I was assigned specifically these um, these two brothers, these youth that are sort of the, the reason that I started Foster Features because I was the only one on staff that had experienced foster care. And I was not prepared for everything that they were bringing and all their pain. And it was very hard. And I'm someone who you know could relate to them better than anyone else in the building. It's hard. You're going to be challenged. And it's, it's unnatural, you know, it's an unnatural thing for a child to experience. And there's a reason that they're reacting the way that they are. So just keep that in mind that there's no bad kids. There's bad situations that unfortunately have a terrible impact on children. And it manifests in a way that everything manifests in children, you know, like they're having a response or having a reaction. And most of the time they don't really know what it's about or how to control it. And that's why they need us. Mm-hmm. It, we talk about trauma 
quite often on this podcast and something that I recently learned um, that was a bit surprising to me. You mentioned that a break in relationship with between a child and an adult is traumatic, and that's absolutely true. But what I didn't realize is that even a foster situation or an adoption from birth, let's say a birth mother um, has a child and never sees it again starting on day one of that child's life, that's still a traumatic event for that child. And I didn't realize that even if the biological mother didn't have a relationship with the child after birth happened, it's still traumatic. And that was very surprising for me to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is a bonding that happens. It may not be something that when the child becomes an adult, they can talk about, you know, but these things are happening just because there's not necessarily an awareness as we get older. It's still influencing, you know, like your brain isn't like not working when you're a baby, like it's, it's developing an understanding of your environment. And so there's still a loss there. And, and also when you are an adult or even, you know, while you're growing up, just the, the understanding that, you know, someone gave birth to you, but that person isn't your parent and these other people are your parents and they love you and they want you. There's still, there's some pain and some loss there. And I think that needs to be honored and it doesn't take away from the relationship that a child has with their adoptive parents, not at all. And it doesn't mean that the child wishes that they had been with their birth mother. There's just something that needs to be honored about that experience for that child. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. As somebody who advocates for children in foster care and, you know, spreads awareness and does so many good things for this community, in your opinion, how can these children be most directly assisted or benefited by adults that aren't involved in the system at all? Does that look like mentorships or financial assistance or being a role model, maybe? What does that look like in your opinion? Well, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, like I said, with awareness comes the ability to to connect. And if you're someone that wants to work with youth and you want to specifically work with foster youth, I think, you know, you have to listen. You really have to listen to what the youth are telling you, because well, the one thing I can tell you that there isn't enough of is people listening to their stories, to their experiences, to their frustrations. We want so quickly to just be like, okay, here's an opportunity. Here's an internship. Go, go save your life. Go be successful. Like, here you go. And it, it's not as simple as that. And, you know, and I, I often say opportunity is not enough. You need the tools to take advantage of the opportunity because there are so many different factors that play into how those opportunities are feel available. And, you know, organizations like Together We Rise, I interviewed um, their executive director in my first episode, and she provides her organization as a nonprofit that provides services for youth aging out of care. Um, they do other things as well, but they have um, a scholarship program and they have a mentorship program and a professional development program. And one of the things that I really loved about their nonprofit, and I don't love a lot of nonprofits, if I'm being honest, a lot of them <laughs> I feel like are a little bit exploitative and predatory mm-hmm. and kind of full of shit. Um, it's okay to say that on your podcast. Sure is. Uh, but, um, you know, they're actually informed by the youth that they're helping. And so one of the pieces of conversation that we had in the first episode was around understanding that, you know, the, providing like a tuition waiver program, you know, like it's not enough. Like what about youth who have aged out of care and they, they actually got as far as getting into a college and they get to go tuition free, but they still have to pay fees. They still have to have a place to live when their dorms are closed. They, you know, like all these things that like this tuition waiver program was, you know, supposed to be, um, you know, providing, it's not providing enough for the opportunity to be taken advantage of. Yes. Yeah. Like you you need the tools, like you need to think everything through. Like if you really want to foster youth to take advantage of this opportunity, then you you need to help them actually take advantage of the opportunity. Like a discount is great, but like it's it's not going to get you there. Yes, I love that. I did listen to that episode. We kind of talked about the fact that I prefer not to learn a whole lot about my guests prior to recording mm-hmm. because when that happens, I find that I don't ask the right questions and right. It really helps to get to know you along with the listeners, but I did listen to that episode and I really appreciated it. I look forward to listening to the rest. 
For listeners who are interested in Foster Features, are you on all the podcast platforms? Where can we find you? Yes. So Foster Features podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, most podcasts. I don't actually know the other platform than the other ones. It's available on Spotify and on Audible and on something called, I want to say it's Outcast. I, I'm not sure, but there are a number of, it's, it's available on most of the most popular anyway, um, platforms. I love that. I cannot wait to listen to the rest of your episodes and follow you, you know, kind of hearing the people that you're interviewing and hearing their stories and just continuing to learn how you advocate for children in foster care, because I feel like I have a lot to learn from you. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, I loved listening to your podcast because it was, it's interesting to hear from a foster parent. I mean, I, in the advocacy work that I'm doing now, I have probably more exposure to foster parents than I've had ever before in my advocacy work. I've been doing this for about 15 years, but just in different ways. Um, the podcast is obviously like the most like involved I've been in, in, you know, across all of my efforts, across all of the years, but it was so interesting to hear your conversations with your husband and you're talking about real things. And that was really exciting to me to hear like, oh yeah, when they talk about a caseworker, like not knowing the name of the kid and like all these things, I was like, yes, exactly. Like, thank you for like <laughs> speaking the truth because I think a lot of people are afraid to do that or they just think it's normal. It becomes normalized. And it's like, there's nothing normal about that. Can we please not say that that's okay? So I really valued that about, you know, what you brought to, to your podcast and the conversations that you're having. I think that it's, you know, it, we need your voice too, in order for my work to be effective, you know, it, it has to be a broader collective. And, and I think that the things that you're saying, you know, you're, you're speaking truth about the system and, and we have to have visibility on that and you're providing that. So I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Um, One of the goals was to be able to provide foster parents with real information, whether it be good or bad, because I don't like to see, and I see this happening all the time, foster parents will go through the training classes and they'll feel like they're very prepared and they'll spend months and months getting all ready to go and they'll get their first placement and realize that they actually were not prepared with what really happens in dealing with DCS or an agency or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. And if I'm being completely honest, I have held back just a little bit only because I don't want to get into an episode where it feels like I'm kind of complaining and making it seem worse for foster parents than it actually is. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of trying to walk that line, yeah. but I know that I do need to do a better job of, you know, talking about the details and the struggles, but still mentioning the good parts. I mean, because if it wasn't good, for us, I mean, and selfishly for us all around, we wouldn't be doing it. But I think people need to be prepared with the entire picture before they decide that they're going to take their first placement. Yeah. And I think honestly, the best thing that you can do is is be truthful with the good and the bad, because we don't want foster parents who aren't prepared, right? Like it doesn't help a youth to enter a home and the people are like, whoa, like, trust me, your kid is picking up on that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I know you don't want to scare people away, but if they're, if they're not prepared, then they're not doing a good job and they could be, you know, possibly even adding to the pain and the trauma of that child. If they're not cognizant that they're going to be challenged, that there are variables that you cannot predict. You don't know what child you're going to get, what situation you're going to get. You don't know how you're going to respond to it because it's new, right? I mean, and, and every kid's situation is different. It might trigger you differently or might, you know, provoke a warmth or a connection or a bond. It's really hard to know. Like these are unpredictable factors. And maybe that's how you say it. You know, it's like, it's really unpredictable. There are good experiences and bad experiences, but know that you're going to have both. Mm hmm. Yep. That is great. I really appreciate that you were courageous and, you know, you're sharing your story not only with me, but on your own podcast. And I, I just thank you so much. It's very obvious that you're an incredible person. So I just want to one last time say thank you. I really, really I'm not sure that you understand how much it means to me that you were able to sit down and talk to me. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. It's really been a pleasure. And thank you for everything that you're doing. As a former foster youth, I wish that we had a million of you. <laughs> a million of you and Joel. 
And now is where we get to the mushy stuff. (laughs) Um, Before we wrap up, I do want to, again, give a big, big thank you to our podcast editor, Ruben Andrews. Ruben allows me to spend more time with the kids and not staring at my computer all day. So I really appreciate him. And as a reminder, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review, maybe with some notes on the Purple Podcast app. Um, I do read every single one of those notes, and it's definitely my favorite part of the day. The comments are always so sweet. I love hearing about the journeys that my listeners are on in their foster care story or adoption story or even their parenting story. And of course, we can't cut off for today without thanking you, Pauline. I, again, really appreciate everything you do in your podcast and with your advocacy work and, of course, for talking to me today. So thank you. Thank you, Alex. Have a great day and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. You too. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.